chapter 4 of Jonah is a very angry passage, isn't it? Keep it open if you've uh, flicked off from it. Um, Look at the contents page if you can't find it. It's one of those tricky books. Um, Jonah chapter 4 is uh, a really angry chapter. I want to start by asking you, what what have you got angry about this week? Uh, Maybe you got angry about the shooting of Cecil the lion. Or perhaps you're a little bit angry about the Australian batting performance. Had to get it in there. Uh, Maybe something more serious. Do you know what gets my goat? When they mess up the McDonald's order. Happens every time. The last time I went in there on uh, on the winter holidays, I asked for a hamburger with only ketchup. Do you know what they gave me? A burger bump with just ketchup in it. You see, what gets us, what we get angry about reveals our hearts. It reveals what we love and what we cherish. Uh, The preacher Tim Keller said, in its uncorrupted origin, anger is actually a form of love. See, our anger is us dealing with a threat to something we love and some, or something we cherish. And so anger can be right, can't it? It's right to get angry about the BMW driver who speeds down the road where your kids play. It's right to be angry about the terrorist attack on the front pages of the newspaper. But more often than not, we get angry for the wrong reasons. We get angry for the wrong reasons because... We love the wrong things. That's what we get in Jonah chapter 4. You see, uh, God has relented from sending disaster on Nineveh. And then um, Jonah gets pretty angry, doesn't he? Look at verse 9. He says, I'm angry enough to die. And it makes him look like a bit of a jerk, doesn't it? I think that's how Jonah's presented throughout the book. Uh, chapter by chapter, the jerk level increases. If you've um, not been with us for the past three weeks, uh, you would have seen that Jonah has been given the task of warning Nineveh, God's enemies, that God's impending judgment is coming upon the city because of their evil ways. What does Jonah do in chapter one? He runs from God by boat. In chapter 2, uh, when God re- after God rescues Jonah from drowning by a fish, he prays one of the most self-centered prayers in the Bible. There's no thank you, there's no sorry. And then in chapter 3, as Jonah gets to Nineveh, he bleats out this minimalist uh, message of warning to Nineveh. And it's really quite pathetic. In chapter 1, he says, I worship the God of the heavens and the earth. But you wouldn't know it. And in chapter 4, after God relents of destroying Nineveh, Jonah turns the jerk volume up to 11. And the passage this morning is structured around these three questions that we, f- we get from God. They're, they're there in verse 4, verse 9, and verse 11. And each question acts like the surgeon's acts like the surgeon's knife, if you will, exposing Jonah's heart, but also pointing us to the heart of God, to God's mercy and compassion. And so in doing so, invites us to embrace this mercy and compassion with every day of our lives. 
I've got three simple points this morning from, from the text. Uh, the first point is that we see Jonah's anger. That's verses 1 to 4. And we'll pick up the action at chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. See the repetition? He's fuming, isn't he? He could get a job in Gordon Ramsay's kitchen. He's got steam coming out of his ears. He's really uh, quite, really quite riled. Uh, the reason's there in verse 2. He says, I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Check it out. What he's saying is, Right from the beginning, right from chapter 1, the moment that he got the call up, he knew that God wouldn't destroy Nineveh. He knew God that well. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that he would say uh, something like this. It's extraordinary because at the end of chapter 3, the credits should be rolling, the music should be playing, and we should be spilling our popcorn all over the movie, celebrating that Nineveh has changed her ways and repented. But that's not Jonah. Have a look at him. He's throwing a tanty, isn't he? You can imagine him walking around with the bottom lip uh, blubbing away, you know, the stomp, 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 a six-year-old going on 13. Um, And you've got to ask, what's going on? What's going on? We we heard last week from uh, James that Nineveh was a brutal city. They skinned their prisoners alive. They stabbed. They beheaded. They impaled people. They cut off hands, feet, and tongues and gouged out eyes. They made ISIS look like pussycats. And the narrative, set, the narrative sets us up. The narrative does set us up to give Jonah a hard time. But you've got to realize, we've got to remember that Jonah could have had friends who were tortured by Nineveh. Some years after this, uh, Assyria, Nineveh's country, well, they would invade Jonah's country, Israel, the northern kingdom, and destroy their capital, Samaria. And so what Jonah does is he draws this ring in the sand, draws a ring in the sand, and he decides just how far God's mercy and God's compassion extends. Of course, he does uh, what we all do, doesn't he? He puts himself in the ring and he puts the Ninevites out. And then he gets fuming because God has got other plans. Friends, on the cross of Jesus, God has put an even bigger offer of mercy and compassion on the table. For us, for our city, and for our world. I don't think many of us would get angry about Sydney becoming Christians if all the the people who are running the city to serve this morning would suddenly become Christians. I don't think that would bother us at all. We'd be posting the headlines all over our Facebook groups going, hey, look what God's doing. However, this is what would get us angry, isn't it? Imagine you're in the queue for heaven. Now, the people you expect to be there are there in the queue. Bono's there. Mother Teresa's there. But then um, standing next to Bono is an ISIS commander. And talking to Mother Teresa is a heroin dealer. That would be pretty bad, wouldn't it? It would be pretty hideous. 
what would make it worse is that when you look around you, you notice the people who aren't there. You notice that your friends aren't there, that your family aren't there, that the nice little woman who you buy your coffee from in the morning isn't there. That would get, get, that would get us pretty Jonah, wouldn't it? It would get us pretty angry, get, get us pretty riled up. See, Jonah's anger reflects what God's mercy and compassion in Jesus is really like. The gospel is this big. It's big. It's bigger than Nineveh. It's more offensive than Nineveh. It's big enough even for the biggest scumbags in the Bible. I wonder whether you noticed as the New Testament reading was read what Zacchaeus was like. Zacchaeus was a scumbag. He was a traitor. He was a thief. He probably tortured people to extract money from them. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Lost people like Nineveh, like Zacchaeus, like you and me. So often we're indifferent to God's mercy, aren't we? we kind of indifferent about sharing Jesus. We're a bit mere about people wanting people to receive God's mercy. That's not right, is it, as we look at Jonah 4? It's not right to be indifferent. We should at least have the Vegemite reaction that we either love God's mercy or hate God's mercy. When we understand the gospel, when we understand God's mercy, we'll either love it or hate it. We'll hate it uh, like Jonah because it means that our pedigree and our performance cannot get us into heaven, cannot get us into the ring. Nothing we ever do, nothing that we are can get us into the inner, God's inner circle. But we should love the gospel as well. Because it also means that our pedigree and our performance cannot keep us out of heaven. Cannot keep us out of the circle. Nothing we can do can keep us out of the circle. And that is very good news. Well, verse 4, the Lord asks Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And we go, of course it's not. Of course it's not. And he puts this, he puts a... This little training session to him in verses 5 to 10. And that's the, uh, our next point this morning, that we see God's boot camp. God's boot camp. Uh, verse 5, Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Presumably, uh, Jonah was expecting Nineveh to backslide and God to send down the lightning bolts. I wonder whether you uh, noticed the little emphasis as this uh, uh, training uh, session pans out. Do you see the emphasis? Verse 6, God appointed a plant and it grew up to provide shade. Verse 7, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. See what God is teaching Jonah about? He's teaching about his sovereignty and just how far his sovereignty extends. We've already seen how far God's sovereignty extends in the book of Jonah. 
uh, we've seen uh, we've seen that it, it extends to shipping timetables. We've seen that it ex- extends to to weather format uh, to weather systems. We've seen that God's sovereignty extends to whopping big fish in the ocean. And now Jonah learns that God is sovereign even over the worms. It's amazing, isn't it? That is some control. Imagine being Lord of the worms. The kids would love it. Come on, worms, we're going to the park. It's amazing, isn't it? And yet we see just how fickle Jonah is. As the plant goes up, so uh, does Jonah's mood. Verse 6, he's happy. And as the plant comes down, as the worm gets into it, his temper goes up. Verse 7. Verse 9, then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, he replied, it is right. I'm angry enough even to die. It's pretty angry, isn't it? Pretty angry, volatile reaction. Imagine what it'd be like if they had caffeine in his day. You see, Jonah's anger reveals Jonah's heart. Jonah has a a Jonah-centered view of God's sovereignty. You see, his uh, view of God's sovereignty is anchored to his own comfort, to his own experience and happiness. When he's comfortable, God is king. When Jonah hits hard times, God's not king. He wants out. He wants to die. And so in the midst of him sitting in this grandstand uh, on the east of the city, watching God's salvation plan for Nineveh unfold, Jonah's source of joy, only source of joy, is this plant. It's extraordinary, isn't it? He's just seen this miraculous salvation of this pure evil city. And all he can think about is the plant. It's pretty tragic. We're meant to see the tragedy of that, I think. We're meant to see the tragedy of it. And we're also meant to look in the mirror. Because as, uh, we, as we Christians sit in the grandstand of history, we are witnesses to God, God's complete sovereignty in his salvation plan for the world. It's amazing where we sit. We see all of the plan unfolded throughout the Bible, culminating in Jesus. We see God enter human history in Jesus. We see uh, Jesus walk willingly towards another city, Jerusalem. We see uh, Jesus giving up his throne. We see him walk towards that city with tears in his eyes to die on a cross. Because God is so angry at our sin that he is angry enough to die. And he sends his son to die in our place. To face his judgment in our place so that we need not save it, uh, need not face it. He sends Jesus so that his mercy and compassion would extend to us, would extend even to the soldiers who nailed his arms to the cross. And friends, we're witnesses to that salvation plan. It's extraordinary what God has done for us in his sovereignty in Jesus. 
And yet so often we're like Jonah, aren't we? We are Jonah. So often our only source of joy is our happiness and our comfort. And our chief source of our anger is so often our discontent with God's sovereignty. I wonder whether that's you. I know it's me all the time. We're happy when, in the good times to say, oh, I'm very blessed to post on Facebook uh, feeling hashtag blessed. We do that all the time, don't we? But in the hard times, we're furious. We shake our fists at God and say, where are you? Where are you? Have you abandoned me? Well, if we know Jesus and we've seen the cross and we've seen God's sovereign plan, we know that he has not abandoned us. He's dealt with the end game. He's won us our place in heaven. And we just have to embrace his compassion and mercy. See, friends, uh, uh, we have a, a greater source of joy in Jesus. We have a source of joy of being partners with God in his salvation plan for the world. And if we spend uh, more time embracing and, and thinking about God's mercy and God's compassion and less time getting angry about our lack of comfort or our lack of happiness, then I think we'd be different people and this city would be a different place. Friends, I don't say that to to point the finger at you. I'd love to say that on Wednesday when I met my friend for a coffee that I walked from Town Hall Station through to Pitt Street Mall and I wish I could say that I had this anger for the fact that all of these people were headed for hell. But I can't. I wish I could say that I had as much energy for telling these people the gospel as I did looking at the clothes shops on the way to the coffee. But I can't say that. I can't say that. Well, our final point may help us with that, if that's you. And our final point is that in uh, verses 10 and 11, we see our invitation. Verse 10. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and it perished in a night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? It's a bit of a weird way to end a book of the Bible, isn't it? If you uh, flick the page and we're looking for the next paragraph, don't worry, I've done that and I went to Bible college. Um, you kind of feel like it shouldn't end there, that there should be another paragraph after the end of chapter 4 that uh, talks about uh, Jonah high-fiving God and then both living happily ever after. But it doesn't end there. It leaves us hanging and it leaves us Uh, to write the ending with our own lives. It invites us in to paint a picture of what life should be like in the service of God. See, in uh, God's little closing speech, we get a a picture of God's heart. We get a picture of God's kingdom. When God looks at Nineveh, he doesn't see scum like Jonah does. He sees a great city. He doesn't see horrid people. He sees 120 souls who he needs to save. He sees 120 people who are morally bankrupt, who do not know their left from their right. 
and he will not leave them alone. Jonah doesn't see things that way, does he? He just sees the scum. Uh, One author writes in explaining uh, what's going on here between Jonah and God. He says, waging in Jonah's heart is a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. That's true, isn't it? It's a, a battle that wages in every single one of us here, I'm sure. It's a battle that wages in our hearts. It's a battle that we know all too well. But it's a foolish battle to fight. See, the kingdom of self will only get you uh, as far as the grave. It will only put you in a box in the ground. The kingdom of God and the, the compassion and mercy of God is an eternal promise, an eternal hope. And with membership of that kingdom comes great, great hope. Great, great hope for ourselves and great, great hope for the people that God has put in our lives. As we wrap up, uh, you might be here this morning and you're thinking, I'm more like Jonah than I'd like to be. I see more of Jonah in myself than I wish. Uh, I get it angry more than I'd like, and I can see the kingdom of self at work in me. Perhaps you know that your heart is a million miles away from God's heart. Friends, don't be discouraged, because in the gospel of Jesus, there is great hope, even for people like us. See, if you've trusted in the rescue plan of God, if you've trusted Christ's death for you, Uh, God has not only saved you for the end game, for a place in heaven, but he has given you a new heart. He's given you a heart transplant and he is transforming your Jonah-like heart into a Jesus-like heart. That's a tremendous encouragement, isn't it? He transforms our hearts so that we will love our enemies like God does. So that we will leap, uh, weep for our lost city like Jesus does. And we will stop at nothing to seek and save the lost. Friends, it's an amazing invitation that God calls us into. A life of partnership with him in holding out this salvation to the world. It is radical and countercultural, but it is the best life to live. And I encourage you to live that. We're going to wrap up now by watching a video of a group of Christians who have grasped that compassion and mercy of love. It's a video from a group of Christians to ISIS in Iraq and Syria. So uh, watch this. It's quite exciting and inspirational. <laughs> 